When I was in high school, our Latin class translated parts of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was facing much political opposition in Rome. He had many enemies. But the man who assassinated him with a little dagger was his close and trusted friend, Brutus. As he was dying, Julius Caesar turned to Brutus and said, Et tu, Brute? Meaning, you too, Brutus? I think the pain of betrayal far exceeded the pain of the blade in his moment of death. If you have ever been betrayed by someone you trusted, then you will understand Nehemiah's predicament in the last half of Nehemiah 6. The worst kind of spiritual attack comes from within the religious community, not from without. Why? Because we don't expect it, so it hurts even more. The worst kind of betrayal comes from trusted leaders who give us misleading advice. As the saying goes, advice is like mushrooms. The wrong kind can be fatal. How do we deal with the betrayal of friends? How do we see through the counsel of leaders we trusted? Nehemiah tells us that trusting in truth uncovers false counsel. Unfortunately, truth itself is under attack in our world today. Rudy Giuliani, in his infamous interview with Chuck Todd in 2018, said, Truth isn't truth. Truth isn't truth. Along with truth isn't truth, many use the phrase alternative facts today to defend their political positions as if facts are no longer facts and truth is no longer truth. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Yale Law School librarian Fred Shapiro selects 10 quotes each year that best reflect the spirit of our times, the spirit of that year. In 2018, he selected the phrase, truth isn't truth. He wrote, I think the most striking development in our current culture is a dramatic decline in respect for truth in politics. Jesus, standing before Pilate at his trial, said, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, John 18, 37. Do you remember Pilate's response? Pilate said, What is truth? The cynics today stand with Pilate. Christians must stand with Jesus. There is no such thing as your truth versus my truth. Truth is truth, and only truth can help us see through the false counsel of other people. There are two lessons which deal with two attacks in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 10 through 19. These two lessons start with the belief that truth is truth and truth will help us see through falsehood today. First, we must learn to see through the counsel of fear in verses 10 through 14. We must learn to see through the counsel of fear. 
In the last podcast, we saw that Nehemiah faced two attacks in verses 1 through 9. He faced the attack of tempting distractions and the attack of false accusations. Now we come to attacks 3 and 4, which are designed to impugn Nehemiah's integrity as a leader. Attack number 3, false fear, verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 10 through 14. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Apparently, Shemaiah was one of the priests. He was a reputable religious leader in Jerusalem, one who commanded a measure of respect in the community. The text says, that he was confined at home. We're not told why he was confined at home, and some scholars speculate that he was shut up temporarily because of ritual impurity. But since he suggests they go, they both go into the temple to continue their meeting, that seems unlikely. It's more understandable to see that this was a ruse to get Governor Nehemiah to come to his home. It's a better speculation to suggest that Shemaiah had confined himself to his home because there were reported threats on his life. This would lend credence to his message to Nehemiah and influence Nehemiah to come to his home to talk. Shemaiah would be saying, Look, Nehemiah, we are both in danger. There are threats on both our lives, so let's take refuge inside the temple for protection. I can get us into the temple to hide from our enemies. The Hebrew word for temple that is used here literally means a palace, but it's not the normal word for the royal palace in the Bible. It was almost always used of the palace of God, who was considered the true king of Israel by the priests. In other words, Shemaiah was talking about the temple, the palace of God. The word was often used of the specific hall of the temple known as the holy place. The holy place was a room distinguished from the holy of holies, which only the high priest entered once a year. The holy place, on the other hand, was the divine reception hall, according to some for the priests who represented the people of God at the altar. Shemaiah pretended to be in personal danger to convince Nehemiah that he was in danger too and that he was doing Nehemiah a favor by warning him. 
This was a well-planned hoax by some of the established religious and political leaders to discredit Nehemiah and gain support for themselves. According to the Hebrew text, Shemaiah's message was delivered in the form of a message from God himself. He presented it as a warning from God to lend authority to the message he delivered to Nehemiah. Notice that in verse 14, we are told that there were a whole group of prophets led by a prophetess named Noadiah who were counseling Nehemiah with the counsel of fear. There are leaders in every generation who play on the false fears to gain support. They might tell us how much they have been under attack or how others have threatened them because they don't like the truth. They might play on our fears by proclaiming a message from God about how Christianity is under attack in some new and dramatic way. This excites people and develops a paranoia among Christians about the latest conspiracy theories that threaten our faith. Paranoia is a powerful weapon that others, including Christian leaders, sometimes use to influence us. My friends, beware of conspiracy theories that make us paranoid of the enemy. A classic example of this fear-mongering is the case of Mike Warnke a number of years ago. Mike Warnke came to evangelical fame with the release of his book, The Satan Seller, in 1973. He made millions of dollars selling his life story about being a satanic high priest of a 1,500-member Satanist group during college. He told bone-chilling tales about the occult, along with his drug habits and sexual immorality. He told how God dramatically saved him from all that evil. He also warned Christians about large-scale, organized satanic conspiracies targeting churches in America. Mike became a highly popular speaker in evangelical churches and was the expert on numerous television shows. He traveled around the country as a Christian comedian and an inspirational speaker. His ministry became popular as he played on the fears of Christians about the occult in America. But much of his story was sheer fraud. Mike Warnke was a master storyteller who concocted his past to achieve fame in evangelical churches. What was worse is that many Christian leaders and co-workers knew about the real Mike Warnke and said nothing. He and his ministry were eventually exposed by an investigative article by Cornerstone magazine in 1992. Warnke struck back at those who exposed him by claiming that his enemies were part of an extremely powerful satanic cult and that people will be killed if they support him. He said that he was under satanic attack and that his ministry was being destroyed by satanic enemies like Cornerstone Magazine and Christianity Today, both of whom had written articles exposing his fraud. Mike Warnke disappeared from the public eye for 10 years after that, 
but he reappeared trying to recover his popularity in 2002. Fear-mongering worked, and he wanted to use it again with another book tour and another book. The sad reality is that Christians have been easily duped by fear-mongering conspiracies down through history. We seem to get caught up in the wildly sensational conspiracy theories far too easily. It's just like Shemaiah in the days of Nehemiah. It is false fear that is used for personal gain. I want you to notice how Nehemiah responded to this use of false fear in verses 11 to 14. He refused to be taken in by the fear-mongering. He refused to give in to paranoia. The text says that Nehemiah perceived, keyword, Nehemiah perceived that God had not sent Shemaiah to warn him. How did he know that? How did he perceive that? What tipped him off that these were false fears and that he shouldn't succumb to paranoia? Perception sees through deception. Perceptive people think. They go back to what they know to evaluate what others are saying. Perception begins with a knowledge of the truth. Nehemiah went back to what he knew about God. He thought about the suggestions, and then he thought about how God was never in the paranoia business. God doesn't operate that way. He doesn't use fear of others to guide our decisions. The point is that Nehemiah thought. He used his brain. He evaluated the information. He examined the conspiracy theory. Nehemiah didn't just accept what people were telling him, even though those were reputable leaders. Thinking about the truth is critical to uncovering false counsel from others. It is important to becoming a perceptive person. Oswald Chambers wrote, As long as the devil can keep us terrified of thinking, he will always limit the work of God in our souls. When you are afraid, then go back to what you know about God's truth and what you know about God's character. What did Nehemiah know? Well, he knew God's law in verse 13. It was against God's law for a non-priest to enter the holy place, going all the way back to the tabernacle. God had instituted requirements that only priests were allowed into the holy place of the tabernacle or the temple. An outsider who entered the holy place was to be put to death, according to Numbers 18.7. That Shemaiah proposed something contrary to God's word marked him as a false prophet. God would not tell Nehemiah to do something contrary to what God had already said elsewhere in his word. So you must know the Bible to effectively evaluate the counsel that people give you, even if the counsel comes from respected religious leaders. Know the word of God yourself and evaluate everything you hear by that word. As James Boyce wrote, 
The God who forbids us from doing one thing in one place does not contradict himself by telling us to do it in another. Nehemiah knew God's law, which helped him see through the false counsel of Shemaiah. What else did Nehemiah know? He knew God's history. God struck King Uzziah with leprosy when he dared to enter the sanctuary of the temple in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 to 20. King Uzziah was not to be in the temple. Well, Nehemiah 6, verse 11 should be translated, Could one such as I go into the temple and live? The inference is that even if he saved his life from some enemy here on earth, he would be judged by God just like Uzziah. You see, we need to know that it is God we answer to ultimately for all we do in our lives, not humans. Fear God more than you fear man. What else did Nehemiah know? He knew God's promises. You must go all the way back to Nehemiah's prayer in the first chapter to realize that Nehemiah grounded his whole mission on the promises of God. In his prayer, Nehemiah said to God, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people to whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. That was his prayer before he went to King Artaxerxes. You see, Nehemiah trusted God to make him successful in his mission. He rested in the promises of God to restore his people to their land. One of the most important things we must do when fear begins to dominate our thinking is to remind ourselves of the promises of God. The promises of God are powerful antidotes to fear. And finally, he knew God's power. He knew God's power. Nehemiah looked back to his prayer in the first chapter, where he had expressed faith in the power of God to regather his people and restore them to the land. Then here in chapter 6, verse 9, Nehemiah had asked God to strengthen his hand, to complete the task. He trusted God to give him the power. And he prayed again in verse 14 of Nehemiah 6 for God to remember the attacks of the enemy, which means that he trusted God to deal with those threats, to deal with those attacks. When fear begins to overwhelm you, make a conscious effort to remind yourself of the power of God. We trust in his power. He is the all-powerful one who is fully capable of handling anything that man might throw at us. 
So look to God for the strength to overcome your fears. Don't get caught up in the latest conspiracy theories and lose sight of the power of God to deal with whatever happens. This is not how God works. We trust him. We don't live in fear. Here's the point, my friends. To the ex extent that you know God's word, history, promises, and power, and you act on that knowledge, to that extent you will see through the counsel of fear. One reason why so many Christians live in fear today is that they do not know and they do not trust the truth of God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. We must learn to see through the counsel of fear. And secondly, we must learn to see through the counsel of praise, the counsel of praise in verses 15 to 19. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also, in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Johanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Attack number four is political praise. The last two sentences of verse 19 describe the subtle attack. The political leaders in Jerusalem were publicly praising Tobiah to Nehemiah while reporting what Nehemiah said back to Tobiah. Tobiah, meanwhile, was threatening Nehemiah with his private letters. So there was public praise and private intimidation. The nobles in Jerusalem were talking up his enemy while his enemy was trying to take him down. The fourth attack is a classic example of political praise. The walls of Jerusalem were completed in 52 days. That was a remarkable feat of organization and engineering. It took just about six months from the time that Nehemiah first presented his plan to King Artaxerxes, chapter 2, verse 1, until Nehemiah achieved his goal of rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah was a man of action. But his success led to what we might call reversed fears in verses 15 and 16. When the surrounding nations heard the news, they lost their confidence, verse 16 tells us. Literally, the Hebrew reads, they were much cast down in their own eyes. In other words, they were humiliated. They were scared. 
because they recognized this was a supernatural work. This was not an ordinary human accomplishment, but was the work of Israel's God in a powerful way. The irony was that they tried to intimidate Nehemiah, but now are afraid themselves. There are some very practical principles we can remember in our own spiritual battles. First, when God does a great work, the enemy runs scared. When God does a great work, the enemy runs scared. They might not show it. They still might be filled with bravado on the outside. But inside, they are scared. Why? Because when humans come face to face with a work which clearly was accomplished by the power of God, a work which is above and beyond human expectations, then God is vindicated in their hearts, even if they deny him with their mouths. Second, the greater the opposition, the greater the glory for God when he defeats it. We tend to be intimidated by great opposition. We see the problems. We say, that won't work because of this problem or because of that problem. We look at our human resources and say, we don't have enough money or we don't have enough people to do the job. It's easy to become intimidated by others who have more power, more money, or more influence. But remember, remember, my friends, that God likes the battle best when the odds are stacked against us. When we can see no way that we can win, that is precisely when God's power is demonstrated the most. Why? Because when we come to the end of our resources, then he gets the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that God deliberately chooses the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the wise and powerful so that God might be glorified. So God likes to stack the odds against us to drive us to depend on him. As long as we have all the money we need sitting in the bank, well, it's easy to depend on God then. But then we tend to get a good deal of the credit when the victory comes, when the success arrives. That is why God likes to stack the odds against us and then call us to step out and follow him anyway. Remember, my friends, the greater the opposition, the greater the glory for God when he defeats it. When God does a great work, the enemy runs scared. Now, now the fears are reversed as the enemy recognizes the power of God. But that does not mean that they roll over and play dead. No, no, not at all. It means that they redouble their efforts, but change their tactics. Reversed fears lead to new tactics in verses 17 to 19. A great deal of correspondence was going on between Tobiah, one of the enemies of Nehemiah, and the leaders in Jerusalem as the walls neared completion. Tobiah was an Ammonite political official, but he was related to influential leaders in Jerusalem as well. He was probably a Jew himself, 
He was married to the daughter of Shechaniah, the son of Era. His wife's family was mentioned in Esra as one of the original families to return from exile years earlier, Ezra 2.5. So Tobiah married into one of the founding families of the restored nation. His son was married to a daughter of Meshulam, who had been helping repair the wall of Jerusalem, according to Nehemiah 3. You can see his name in verse 4 and verse 30 of chapter 3. In fact, Meshulam was one of the men who did double duty by repairing two sections of the wall. We also learn later that Tobiah had ties by marriage with the priestly family of Eliashib in chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 4. So he's well connected. We must learn several important lessons in our spiritual lives, in ministry. Blood flows thicker than water. It is amazing how often family ties are used to thwart spiritual renewal. Furthermore, the politics of any organization are very powerful and can destroy spiritual renewal through political maneuvering. Often in a church, the opposition to spiritual renewal and growth comes from those who are in positions of power and influence in the church. This great network of religious leaders in Nehemiah's day engaged in political praise. They were praising Tobiah to Nehemiah as a wonderful and influential person who should be consulted. Nehemiah should be careful to court Tobiah's political influence and be careful not to offend him because he could be a powerful political ally or a powerful political enemy. At the same time, they were reporting to Tobiah everything that Nehemiah said and did. They were spies, double agents, so to speak, who were working both ends and the middle for their own political agendas. Someone has said that diplomacy is the art of saying nice doggy until you can find a rock. They were engaging in this kind of diplomacy. They were essentially deceiving Nehemiah pretending to be for the changes that were taking place in Jerusalem, they were at the same time undermining those very changes. They were doing so through the time-honored methods of political praise and personal intimidation. Watch out, my friends, for those who would betray you with political praise. At the New York Butcher's Dressed Meat Company, they kept an animal called a Judas goat, a common practice of slaughterhouses many years ago. The building is still there on 11th Avenue between the 39th and 40th streets in downtown New York City, but the slaughterhouse long ago ceased to exist. In its prime, the slaughterhouse had a roof garden and livestock were herded up a seven-floor ramp to the roof garden from where they were taken to slaughter on the next floor down, the sixth floor. The Judas goat was used to lead the anxious animals up to the roof garden. 
Billy, the Judas goat, started work every morning at seven o'clock, escorting sheep from the unloading pens on the riverfront to the slaughterhouse. There the unsuspecting sheep were killed and dressed. Billy made eight to ten trips a day, leading two or three hundred ewes and lambs on each trip. It's estimated that he became an accessory to the death of about four and a half million sheep. The reason men use such tactics is that sheep, unlike cattle or hogs, cannot be driven. They will follow a leader, however, especially if he is a white animal. Because Billy the Judas Goat was handsome, bright, strong, and commanding in, ex in appearance, the sheep eagerly trailed after him, only to meet their doom. It's the same way in life, my friends. Sooner or later, when you are following human leaders, especially ones that are charismatic, powerful, somebody will let you down or stab you in the back. You learn that human leaders are often in it for themselves and not for you or the mission of God. Such betrayal will shipwreck your faith if you let it. The way to avoid being shipwrecked by traitors is to base your life on the truth of God's word. Then, then no matter who lets you down, you can carry on with the Lord. Someone has said that a lie has speed, but truth has endurance. So stick with the truth of God because he will never, ever let you down. Trusting in truth uncovers false counsel. Fear and praise are two of the most powerful tools of persuasion in the world. What we fear and what we praise tell a lot about what we believe. Others will provoke our fears and praise false leaders to influence our choices. Watch out for people who prey on your fears to get you to do what they want you to do. Watch out for people who praise leaders that you know do not speak the truth. Listen and think, evaluate and examine, but put your trust in the truth of God's word as the guide for life. Truth is the anchor of our souls.